But the point is, purpose is an orientation and an intention. We all, no matter where we are, if we're an individual, a team, a project, a brand, a department, a company, a government, we're all constrained by the systems in which we operate in. But we can still operate with purpose-driven intent. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Future Ready podcast, where we explore how to build future-ready organizations in a new never normal. My name is Anna Cutting, founder of Cozen and your host. Purpose. A word we hear a lot in today's business world, but that often remains abstract and shallow. In the communications world, purpose is often equated to positioning or mission statement. But is this what purpose is truly about? The Oxford Dictionary defines purpose as the reason for which something is done or created. That is to say that purpose is not about charity or being kind, another common misuse of the word. In the business world, purpose describes the very reason why an organization exists. The question of purpose proves itself to be much deeper than it initially seems. Today, profit is often mistaken as the end goal of our economies and therefore as the purpose of our businesses. But in this episode, we speak to a guest who offers an alternative view. Dr. Victoria Hurt sees sustainability as the real end goal of our economies. She defines sustainability as long-term well-being for all and draws our attention to the instrumental role of profit in our sustainability journey. According to this mindset, an organization's purpose should be its contribution to the prosperity of people and nature. Victoria is a pracademic who helps organizations and markets define, operationalize and achieve sustainability. She's currently a member of the Sustainability Impact Committee of the Unaterra Venture Capital Fund and a member of the advisory board of the prestigious Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership, CISL. This is the first episode of a very exciting two-part series where we speak to academics about the topic of sustainability in the business world. In today's episode, we speak to Victoria about the sustainability from a macro perspective and explore how purpose-driven organizations can help catalyze sustainability at a societal level. In the second episode, we will investigate sustainability from a micro lens. We'll be joined by Dr. Brandy Shaw Morris, who will give us insights into the intersection of sustainable business and behavioral science. So keep an eye out for this and now on to the podcast. Victoria, welcome to the Future Ready podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for having me. Let's start a little bit with a little definition of the terminologies, sustainability, ESG. I mean, those are very broad and maybe sometimes even vague um, concepts. Victoria, from your academic perspectives, how precise and clear do you think these terminologies are? How helpful are they in terms of engaging whole societies and organizations? I think they're potentially very useful, but only if we have... Uh, a sort of strong clarity and consensus about what we mean and what we don't mean. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's vital because if we're not clear on a concept, then we can't build a set of shared views about how to bring it about. And therefore, we have no basis for accountability. So I would say 
all terms, and especially we're at a moment in time where we are grappling to unravel the fairly stable system of ideas and understandings and behavior that we've had, and in a period of mass transformation. So we it will be complex. There will be multiple strands of, of concepts that people kind of try to grasp onto, et cetera, et cetera. But I think one of the most important things we can do is to say, look, okay, it might seem chaotic and crazy, yes, but actually it's if you distill it, it's there are some really fundamental basic things that if we can just, you know, redefine, for example, and be clear what we mean by, say, sustainability, then I think we've got a much better chance of uniting energy. In your work, Toria, you also use the concept of well-being. Is this a terminology that, that you suggest kind of replace sustainability or what, what, can you elaborate a little bit on this? Yeah, okay. So so what I would say is that sustainability is a concept and, you know, I think we can really trace that back and anchor back to the Brundtland Report, which is the first time that national leaders, international leaders, leaders of nation states came together in order to say there is something fundamentally wrong with our economy. Mm. What is wrong? Why is it wrong? And where do we go to? That is the basis of sustainability. Let's pause here to talk a bit more about the Brundtland Report, also known as Our Common Future. This was a report released in 1987 by the World Commission on Environment and Development, WCED. Brundtland was the report that introduced the concept of sustainable development. So for the first time, the connections between social, economic and environmental problems were acknowledged and investigated at an international level. The Brundtland Report also laid the foundation for the Rio Summit that took place in 1992, which established the UN Program of Action on Sustainable Development. In that sense, it was an important milestone in the journey to the 17 Sustainable Development Goals we have today. Now back to the podcast. And if we think about what that means and what was in that, the, the definition that said uh, that sustainability is meeting the needs of the current generation without undermining the ability of future generations to meet their needs. We then quickly decided that there were three pillars to that and we kind of went off in our siloed routes to try to work out how we might address one or other pillar. But we forgot the nature of that goal that's embedded in that concept. Mm. And if we If we really break that definition down and we replace the concept of needs for well-being, needs and fulfillment, basic universal needs fulfillment rolls up to well-being. Um, we know that from a range of, of sort of academic and, and other, just take Herman Daly, Danella Meadows, you know, that's a commonly understood mm -hmm. thing. So well-being, we can think of as the umbrella. I mean, we could call it sausage. It really doesn't matter what we call it. The point is that there is a concept that represents the, the good life that we're trying to seek. And so the definition has three main elements. It's well-being, not just any old thing, not mm -hmm. desires, it's well-being. Mm -hmm. It's And then we have to, of course, as philosophers have for the past thousands of years, you know, keep debating what we mean by that and how we achieve it, of course. It's not just for some people, it's for everybody. And it's not just for now, it's over the long, far over the long term, including future generations. So those three key aspects, long-term, well-being for all. Now, depending on your ethical orientation, that for all uh, could, and some would, should include nature 
as having intrinsic value in and of its own right for as an end goal, in which case you might say long term well-being for all people and planet. But of course, you know, that's where we reach the pinnacle of ethical debate, because for some people, humans are the pinnacle goal. So well-being which is increasingly, and we can see that globally, movements towards this concept. So if we think about, for example, the well-being economy, um, that is essentially remembering that the goal of the economy is well-being for society as a whole over mm. the longer term. And that's where I think it gets really interesting. And what my work has been trying to sort of really clarify is the definition of a successful, efficient, effective economy at its heart is the same as the definition of sustainability. And as we look at the Brundtland report, we can also surmise that that is the closest that we might ever get to humanity's metapurpose, an expression of that, long-term well-being for all. And so you have this synergy between the goal of an economy, the goal of sustainability, and the goal of humanity. So if that's the case, why are we not holding that up as the ultimate accountability frame for the value that we are trying to create in the world. And once we do that, which is not, it's nothing new, it's just reframing mm. what was already there, then suddenly we can start to get much more serious and more importantly, very strategic about how we achieve that and how decisions we're making might actually be undermining that goal. It's mm, an interesting perspective. So, so you are saying that Actually, I mean, there is right now a lot of discussion about the changing definitions of business or the changing definitions of capitalism and, you know, the move towards more kind of a, a purpose-oriented um, capitalism. So essentially, if I understand you right, you're saying that was originally the intent of business or economy anyway. We sometime or at a certain point, we lost that idea. And essentially, it's not a new idea that's debated now. It's remembering uh, kind of where we come from. Yeah, I would say uh, yes and. So if you look at Economics 101 and you distill it down, you will get to, yes, the goal of an economy is to optimize well-being for society as a whole. But what has happened over the last, you know, well, we could say more than 100 years, but certainly since Friedman, is this very, very tight set of assumptions that work together that essentially serve for us to point business in the direction of profit maximization, but only because there is the set of very specific rigid assumptions that say by doing that, they will be doing their best job in terms of the economy, providing optimized well-being for society as a whole. And that's based on a set of assumptions about how the market works. And the fact that pe we assume that people are rational, self-interested, utility maximizing, i.e. well-being, maximizing individuals, that they will purchase from the market to the extent that their income will allow, which is vital because that also is another reason why we focus so much on financial income as a goal of success. Because for governments, that is the thing. If they can increase the income of the people in their nation, then they that is the key way that they can enable them to purchase more well-being in the marketplace. So mm -hmm. as long as there are is a proliferation of choice, so people have as much opportunity to enhance their well-being, um, they have as much income as they possibly can to do it, as long as there is the right information, what we call perfect information is the ideal, so that um, people understand when they buy something what it will or will not do for them. That's the role that citizens, which we then call consumers, play. 
for optimizing well-being and the role of companies is not to question what well-being is. It's not to innovate for well-being. It is merely to read the market through market research, to understand what customers are demanding and then to shape the company to deliver what they're demanding. So, so it all starts, this transformation you say, starts with a changing customer demands. Yeah, exactly. There's a thing called the marketing concept that happened around the 50s that really, when we move from classical economics to neoclassical economics, we move from thinking that the value you can optimize in a firm is through increased sales and reducing costs to a sense that, hang on a minute, Actually, the way that you optimize financial income of a, of a business is to serve customers. And that's what was called the marketing concept. It's an organizational concept, management one, actually. It's not a marketing, but it really set the scene for marketing and communications from there on. And then, of course, you had Drucker and Kotler. And the promise was that marketing, therefore, really would be about servicing needs. But, of course, it was overlaid by this set of what we might call neoliberalism or a set of ideas about how the market works and the role of business um, as being doing its best job if it focuses on financial profit maximization and that it's rightful that it does that because it is there to service shareholders who are assumed to be the ultimate beneficiary of that organization. So you have this very quite rigid kind of set of assumptions that have guided what we've done But, but the economy has always been purpose driven. And so when you had like the US business roundtable say the goal of, of American business is to serve the, um, the well-being of all Americans, they were really only just restating what was always there as the goal of any economy at a nation state level. And of course, you could roll that up to the national level. What they didn't do was pin down that they had a different set of assumptions about the best way to do that. So an organization could say, yeah, I support the business roundtable and therefore I'm going to maximize my profits because that's what I've been told and that's what I believe is the best way that I can do my job to service well-being of society as a whole. Now, of course, we have a massive issue. We, all of those assumptions have been torn down in various ways and we know that. But when it comes to sustainability, the, the tool that I rely on most is an adapted Daly's triangle. So Daly, uh, the original ecological economist, and Donella Meadows afterwards, tried to explain a sustainable economy through this triangle. Hey listeners, let me introduce to you the concept of Delhi Triangle in more detail. Herman Delhi was an American ecological economist known for challenging the idea of economic growth as synonymous with prosperity and progress. He argued for a view of development that took environmental impact and resource depletion into account. Delhi essentially defended that sustainable development be seen as long-term well-being for all, like Victoria does throughout this episode. In 1998, environmental scientist Donella Meadows developed Delhi's idea to visually conceptualize the Delhi Triangle. Well-being sits at the top of the pyramid and it is considered the ultimate ends of the economy. At the base of the pyramid are our ultimate means, which are equated to thriving environmental systems. According to Delhi and Meadows, these systems give rise to material, human and social capitals that sit at the middle of the pyramid. These are the capitals that are fed into organizations and that eventually give rise to financial capital. The idea is that if our capitals are not managed sustainable, it will be impossible to reach our end goal, long-term well-being for all. 
Now that we are all clear on what the Delhi Triangle is about, let's go back to what Victoria has to say. Now, what Daly and Donella Meadows indicated was that our current business as usual, everything I've just been describing about those assumptions of business as usual, are essentially locked into the middle of the triangle, which is essentially seeing financial, and, and this is the, the adaptation at a business decision-making level, we can say a business is focused on financial capital maximization as the end goal, and it does that by focusing on financial income mm -hmm. capture. Mm -hmm. So you have this financialization, hyper-financialization of business, which uh, we can explain in various ways, which is essentially an intermediate means serving an intermediate goal. The end of the economy is completely off limits because we said it's not your job to think about well-being. Your job is just to service um, people's preferences and will ignore the fact that you actually manipulate those preferences routinely for profit and have done for 50 years more. But those are out off limits. And what's at the bottom of the triangle, the health of those natural, social and human capitals, the health of social and environmental systems and the health of the stakeholders uh, that support them, that, that sort of off balance sheet, because we've assumed that those are limitless and we've essentially tried to make it as simple as possible and focused in on the money. So when we put all that together, we can understand why we have unsustainability. Because if you run a system that's essentially trying to optimize for finance through optimizing finance, and the ends and the means are off, off limits and off balance sheet, they're not being valued, of course, you're going to end up in unsustainability. But that also points us then to the solution. Because ultimately, if sustainability is optimizing long-term well-being for all, but to do that, you have to have healthy stakeholders, capitals and social and environmental systems, then sustainability is all of that. And when we bring that into an organization and think about organizational decision making, and this is where purpose comes in, what we're doing is saying, actually, what purpose driven organizations are doing is implicitly or explicitly recognizing that whole issue and saying, no, the reason that we exist is not to optimize our financial income. It is actually to service long-term well-being for all people and planet. And we don't believe that the market will automatically do that based on these rules. So we, in effect, reject those rules. We are going to have a reason to exist that is an optimal strategic contribution to long-term well-being for all people and planet. And we're going to achieve that goal through healthy financial capital, but also healthy social environmental systems, stakeholders and capitals. So it's a whole system approach, but it involves almost direct rejection of those hard assumptions that have really driven us into an unstable business place. Super interesting. So you mentioned the importance of purpose. Now, of course, Many organizations would say they do have a purpose. Oftentimes, it remains rather shallow. I mean, it remains on a poster or it remains in a boardroom. But I guess that is not what you allude to. I guess what you allude to is that it really needs to be much more embedded and kind of integrated into almost all pillars and elements in, of an organization, no? It's another area where we've had, you know, huge amounts of confusion. Um, 
and, and actually that's a history of of sustainability in business so so sort of um efforts to try to align an organization with the sustainable future essentially get sort of um molded and shaped around business as usual because the logics don't match and this is another example so we have a lot of purpose statements out there that are that they're a statement they're a positioning statement they're they're almost akin to a brand promise or something Mm -hmm. what they are not and if we go to the roots of what a purpose is they are not the reason the organization exists they don't encompass the absolute core of why the hell you're in business in the first place therefore the ultimate value that you are trying to create through your enterprise. And let's remember, a business is people coming together for a shared purpose to produce something of value. And we seem to have forgotten that as well. So it is the basis of your innovation, your of everything, all decision making. Mm. And if it isn't that, it's not your purpose. So don't call it your purpose. It's something different. And, and if a purpose to be a purpose as we mean it, it needs to be purposeful. That means it needs to address something of real value. And maybe a hundred years ago, that might, the framing for that might have looked different. But we are now at the point we have to dig up and excavate the most fundamental idea of what is valuable for us and what, therefore, an organization needs to anchor to. And that is long term well being. For all people and planet. And so in PAS 808, which is the first national standard in purpose-driven organizations, it very clearly defined an organizational purpose as a firm's reason to exist that is an optimal, not just any old thing, the best job you can do, an optimal strategic contribution to long-term well-being for all people and planet. And that's so important because if nothing else, it reminds us that purpose is ultimately strategic. It is a strategic response at the very pinnacle of an organization of which every all actions therefore anchor. And if it isn't that, then it's not purpose. I love that you connect purpose to strategic relevance because I feel that often purpose is misunderstood as this kind of soft and intangible thing that is not connected to strategy or action. So really interesting and appreciated. Now, let's think about the real power or impact of businesses. Victoria, can you give us a sense of what the role of private sector companies um, play in this overall sustainability transformation? How big is the contribution of businesses? Yeah, I'd say it's it's pivotal, completely pivotal. If we remember that an economy takes resources and transforms them from well-being and that organizations are the mechanisms that operationalize that, that's what they do. They take resources, they transform them and they turn them into something presumably of value. And then we think about the, the, the history and the structure of of our economy and how much of that is private sector now and how big that private sector is and how big that economy is in our lives. You know, we talk about the marketization of life, but, you know, the amount of things that we do now that require or we feel require something that we purchase from the marketplace versus something we might have otherwise done by not buying something. So we have to remember the economy occupies so much of our life and private sector occupies so much of that. Um, We know that companies have you know, more power now than many governments, um, both individually and collectively. Um, And they also have more remit. They're under less scrutiny than governments to do that. Uh, So I think we 
have to recognize, and I believe business, I've seen a number of surveys recently, business themselves realize how significant they are in that role. The issue we have, going back to what I said before, is that how business sees its role mm-hmm. in a really subconscious way often, often not, not, not really recognized, is fundamentally at odds with the role that society wants them to play and that business leaders increasingly realize they must play. And that's why I think we need to get to the very, very crux of the matter. We've got to get to the worldviews and the beliefs that underpin what we think a business is, where we, what we think it should be doing and how we think we should hold it to account. If we don't get there, we're going to change is going to be very, very hard because we're going to be constantly bashing up against barriers, psychological barriers as much as anything else that just stop us from changing. So can a company be a purpose-driven company in your definition and at the same time being listed in a stock market? Yes, absolutely. And there are more and more ways in which an organization can do that. So in terms of the organizations listed on the stock exchange, they can absolutely move to being purpose-driven. And we, we've seen, so let's just take Natura Uh, a huge Brazilian cosmetics mm-hmm. organization, which uh, was uh, one of the, the first to become a B Corp and yep. to, you know. Now, I'm not saying that, that, that becoming a B Corp is the same as becoming uh, fully purpose aligned mm-hmm. as is set out in PAS 828, but it's an absolutely critical step on that journey. And it doesn't preclude people from being fully aligned. I think the issue that we face is how difficult is it? I mean, let's just look also at Paul Polman and Unilever. Now, they're also listed. You might argue that uh, the governance, uh, the corporate codes, the stock exchange listing codes, the, the norms that sat around that, because often it's not the law that says you need to uh, maximize mm. profits for shareholders. It's the interpretation of the law. <laughs> Uh, it just shows that we, if you get the right leadership and the right organizational culture in place, you can operate as a purpose-driven organization using the tools to your that you have to hand and using that momentum most critically to try to change the stock market codes and listing. I mean, you, we would see Paul Polman say, you know, we want these sorts of people to invest in us. You mm-hmm. know, don't invest in us if you're not like that. We're not going to do quarterly reporting. Now, the extent to which they were able to to fulfill that ambition, to adjust their powerful stakeholder constellation, to alter, you know, the, the sort of rules that they were bound by. Of course, that was hard work. You know, being a front runner in a business as usual system and changing to purposes is never going to be easy. But the point is, purpose is an orientation and an intention. Mm. We all, no matter where we are, if we're an individual, a team, a project, a brand, a department, a company, a government, we're all constrained by the systems in which we operate in. Mm. But we can still operate with purpose-driven intent. We can be clear, what is our optimal strategic contribution to long-term well-being for all that defines our very reason to exist and our decisions that we make, even if that means bashing up against the systems outside. And this is, I think, where we get to the crux of it. If we do not see organizations moving to be purpose-driven and having purpose-driven employees unleashed within that system, where will the energy to change business as usual, to be aligned with sustainable future come from? Where will it come from? I don't know, because what purpose does as much as anything else is unleash 
the desire, the fundamental desire of human beings to be in service of the good of others. And that is the definition of a meaningful life and the fundamentals of purpose. This leads me to wonder, Victoria, about the power of finance in creating this meaningful life you speak of. There's recently been a massive upsurge in sustainable funding, and there is the financial community with ESG standards and all of that. So the concepts and terms related to sustainability are increasingly reaching the financial sector, which has a big impact, obviously, on how companies and private sector act. Um, how important is the role of the financial sector in triggering corporate change, in your view? Yeah, I mean, finance... It, obviously, money is a lifeblood of any system. It's only one of many capitals, and we tend to forget that. But it's uniquely valuable because you can exchange it for other forms of value quite easily, more easily than you can uh, otherwise. So it's like a, a store of value. And the finance sector, therefore, in having access to this sort of fluid stocks of value can move that around the system. And so where we have, especially when we have a system that's set up that uses finance and income as the main goal, the, the main indicator of success for an organization, the main indicator of success for, an, for a government in terms of GDP, uh, because therefore Its citizens have more ability to exchange that for well-being in the marketplace, as we talked about. Finance is, is, is fundamental. What's happening, um, what we're seeing happening is a, a few things. I, I think during the financial crisis, we saw the pressure for the finance industry to rethink itself, to really question some of those fundamentals about what it does and how it does it, and regulatory and legislative pressure come to bear. So I've seen movement in the finance in industry that I haven't seen in other sectors, I think, because of that. Um, we've also had a push towards stewardship, and I think that does tales with the fact that people in finance are humans. <laughs> so they're also seeing all of the systemic issues of biodiversity loss and climate change and water scarcity and inequality, and they're feeling it. And so what they're doing is starting to question, you know, hang on a minute, what are we investing in? Why are we investing in it? Now, what's happening is that that is on the one hand, people who are trying to kind of Uh, transcend the BAU paradigm are moving to say impact investing, where they're saying, you know, actually, we don't just have to assume because we're financiers that uh, our goal is to maximize finance. Our fiduciary duty doesn't necessarily, there's nothing to say that acting in the best interests of someone has to be acting in their best financial interests. We've just decided to add that in as we became financialized. So what if we rethink that and actually someone's best interest It's actually the ability to have well-being for them and their children and future generations into the future. So suddenly you can reinterpret fiduciary duty. So we're seeing that happening. But in a more sort of basic level, what we've seen happening is the finance industry really starting to get to grips with risk. And that really matters. So the way I use the triangle I mentioned earlier to describe different logics, which will help uh, give an insight into this, is the middle of the triangle. If you're sat in the middle of the triangle focused on short-term financial interest, as you start to see unsustainability all around you and all the pressures, the way you'll feel it, if you're short-term self-interest focused, will be through powerful stakeholders putting pressure on you. Mm -hmm. And the way that you'll be able to act is if there's a threat to that short-term 
income. Then you can create a business case because there's a logic for it. There's a rationale for it. And therefore, it often results in a whole range of CSR efforts, which essentially placate stakeholders. And that therefore can look very complicated. And there isn't really anything that ties all these actions together other than that they protect short-term self in financial self-interest. If that pressure went away, there'd be no reason to keep that activity. And that's why sometimes they're short-lived. However, what we're seeing is... Or, and so finance industry falls into that category as well. There are many short-term self-interest finance organizations who, who are looking to be seen to be looking good, but really all they're trying to do is maximize as much money as quickly as possible. What we have is a second logic, which we could call an enlightened approach. So enlightened self-interest, enlightened shareholder value, whatever you want to talk about. And really what that is, is everything's the same in terms of the assumptions of business as usual and how the market works to optimize well-being. That, that's all remains. But the difference is that there is a pushback against short-termism. And there's a focus to say, actually, our financial income optimization is at risk in anything but the short term. If we don't act now, we're not going to be perhaps in business and we're certainly not going to be maximizing our financial income over the longer term. And the reason that started to happen is because organizations have looked beyond the stakeholder pressure and started to look at the science, started to look at the real markers of health of their investments. And so when you have an organization, be it a financing organization or any other, that starts to really dig in to this long-term decision-making, decision-making for the long-term, financing for the long-term, then you start to say, oh my gosh, are our stakeholders healthy? Are they around to service? What, what about our clients and, and our suppliers? We've been trying to you know, get a cheaper price as possible. But hang on a minute, if, if we don't actually invest in them, they're not going to be there for us. And now let's also, you know, we, we do our cash flow and our balance sheet for finance, but, but we don't just rely on finance. We rely on our human resources, on our natural resources. What about the stocks and flows of those? How are they looking? You know, how are we uh, impacting those on a yearly basis? Is our stock and our flow getting better or, or worse? And then beneath that, hang on a minute, scientists are telling us that we're not even going to have, uh, you know, a stable climate. We're not going to have ecosystems to draw any resources from. Our social fabric is breaking down. If we don't have those things in place, we're not even going to be in business. And so suddenly you have a business case for investing differently, for making different investment decisions. And so that's what we're seeing happening across the board, but also in terms of financing, who've been a little bit of ahead of the game, as has the insurance industry, at starting to say, show us, governing body of X company, show us that our investment is sound, not just for now, but for the longer term. And that's where ESG basically comes from. Now, I'd say we're right at the beginning of that journey, really. Mm -hmm. We've got some indicators for some critical systems. And so ESG is sort of like a partial journey. We also have non-financial stakeholders turning around and going, well, we need to know that information as well. You know, we're government, we're society as a whole, we're third sector. Hang on a minute. You need to disclose to us as well. Because it, we might not be financially invested in you, but we're invested in you in many, many other ways. So tell us that. So I think we're moving gradually from airy-fairy targets around some of these key threshold systems to where we're eventually ending up with society obligating organizations to operate, no matter what their goal is, be it finance or purpose, obligate them to operate within thresholds of healthy systems 
social, environmental and stakeholder systems and to prove that they are doing so, which mm -hmm. is where governance becomes so critical. Before we move into the implementation side of sustainability transformations, I wonder how does the private sector view these changes in general? Do companies really understand, in your view, the sense of urgency and the critical role they play in bringing about sustainability? Or are they still not fully understanding it? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it comes down to the individuals in those organizations, what their worldviews are, and then how they enact them in their systems, their cultural hardware and their software. And, and of course, the context in which they then operate. I would be more hopeful than it seems. You know, business as usual is a very, very strong, coherent system that's been there for 50 years. And we, we can't even give it a name now. And, and, and so it shapes everything we do. But I do see businesses, uh, individuals within those businesses waking up daily. And we might not be able to see the shifts in business as usual, but the, but the fabric of it, I think, is, is very fragile now. Um, I, I think we're on the verge of a tipping point that comes not just from the increasing waves of very scary and urgent data around us, but also the fact that the younger generation, who we know are more in tune to this and more uh, sort of questioning of everything, are turning around and, and are starting to be in charge. So I think it looks bleak. Because the urgency that the scientists are telling us and the UN is telling us versus the action seems like such a massive gap. But I think we're reaching some kind of paradigmatic tipping point. And I don't think it would take much for people to turn around and say the emperor has no clothes. I think, and the more that we build a coherent sense of what good looks like, what a well-being economy serviced by purpose-driven organizations and serviced by people, meaningful work and that's the role of, of the PAS 808 in, 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 as well as others uh, one, the more that we can do that the more people will move towards it because as, as, as I think Buckminster Fuller said you don't change something um, by uh, telling the system it's wrong you create a new future that mm -hmm. makes the existing one redundant mm -hmm. and I think mm -hmm. we're at that tipping point so yeah so it's also about sharing stories of those companies who who successfully do this and be kind of role models so that others uh, follows and um, last question on that topic is it more a lack of vision um or a lack of kind of implementation knowledge that prevents organization to be more progressed than they are oh i mean it's an intent and implementation go together but it starts with intent because intent is the motivation And then the question is, where does the motivation come from? And that essentially comes from your worldviews, your fundamental ideas about what's valuable and how the world works. In our context, that requires deep understanding of the system that. So in order to be able to keep that urgency in the room, I mean, because let's face it, you know, business action is just a series of decisions, you know, goals uh, within parameters and strategies for how, how you do that. If the urgency is not in the room, you're going to come up with a completely different strategy to a completely different goal with completely different parameters. And, and that's it. So I think we have an issue in not that people don't know, like at a superficial level that things are urgent and bad, But they are not able to hold that deeply within their worldview and bring it into decisions. 
And when everything about that decision-making context is telling you that's irrelevant, this is a business decision, and our role is to maximize profit, it's very, very hard to maintain that energy unless that is internalized. So it's not that we don't have the knowledge, and I don't think it's that we don't have the intent at a human level. We have, it is not solidified or deeply held enough to be brought into decisions routinely in businesses by individuals. And that, I think, is the work that needs to be done now. Hello, and thank you for listening to Future Ready. This was the first episode of a two-part series in which we talked to academics about their insights on sustainability transformations in the corporate world. In the next episode, we'll continue our conversation and turn our attention to the implementation of the issue. Be on the outlook for the next episode. Future Ready is produced by COSIN, a global communications and change agency on a mission to shape healthy and thriving businesses. Find out more at wearecosin.com. And if you like what you're hearing, as always, please leave us a review or forward um, this show to someone who you think will love it. Thank you very much for this and until very soon.